Let's give it up for the Summer League champions here in 2023, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Welcome to the coronation of the 2023 Summer League Cleveland Cavaliers. Six contests, six battles, all victorious. Not a blemish on the record, not a pimple on the development of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And today, here we sit. In the aftermath of Summer League basketball, it is both happy and sad. Happy because it was but, what, two months ago when we were sitting here opining about the lack of depth of this Cleveland Cavalier team, myself included. I said, patience. We just traded for Donovan Mitchell last September. We haven't even had a full offseason to address the issue. But not only did what happened in free agency happen, which we discussed on the last podcast, but then Summer League hit. Not just one, but multiple prospects exceeded expectations. At the end of the day, the Cavaliers had three to four standouts. Two guys who made all Summer League teams. You had Sam Merrill, who was first team, all Summer League, averaging 20 points a game, a sniper, 25 three-pointers made, which a stat on the broadcast said that is tied for the most three-pointers made in Summer League over the course of the whole thing since 2017. And he did it while missing a game. Then you had Isaiah Mobley averaging 18 points, eight rebounds, five assists, a a little Jokic light performance, stuff in the stat sheet, the hub of the offense. You had Amani Bates, a second-team All-Summer League selection as a 49th overall pick. Certainly, exceeding expectations of many, myself included. I did not think that he would play as effectively as he did. And I'm not talking about scoring. The scoring 17 points is one thing. As has been pointed out by others, Isaac Okoro averaged nearly 20 points a game in Summer League. If you're a priority, you can get buckets. But it's the way in which he did that which gave me a lot of hope. Generally, he wasn't the black hole that I was worried he might be. I did think The first game he was, but games two through six, he made passes. He took a couple hero shots here and there, yes. By and large, I felt like the looks that he gave us were within the flow of the game. I want to get into all the guys. Craig Porter Jr., of course, Luke Travers. All of those guys made significant contributions. The takeaways from this summer league. The first thing I'll say is, it's hard not to feel great about the state of spots 12 to 15 on the main roster. Now, we know how it shakes out. Sam Merrill on the roster. Mobley, Bates, Craig Porter Jr., they are on two-way deals. While I don't expect them to have large roles, especially early in the season, what they showed in this summer league has to put you in a place as a Cavalier fan where you feel pretty damn good about the development and the ability to find talent late and in unconventional ways that Kobe Altman has showcased. Sam Merrill kicked around the league a little bit. We grabbed him, and while we didn't utilize him much last year, after seeing what he did in this summer league, how grateful are you that they locked him up on that non-guaranteed deal that essentially ensures he will stay with us? They could have done nothing, but they gave him the deal last year, and so we had that certainty that he cannot be poached. Now, guys like Sharif Cooper, yeah, they could get poached. But after watching what Craig Porter Jr. did, 12 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, stuff in the stat sheet, just a capable floor leader. Somebody 
who can play well without having to be a priority in the offense. Uh, And Isaiah Mobley, who not only looked stronger, but he looked more confident with his offense. He rebounded well. He shot 25% from three on minimal attempts. It doesn't look good on paper in summer league. However, he knocked down a few big ones. I think if you watched in the flow of the game, if I asked you and you didn't already know the stats, you might feel like Mobley was a little bit better because he did hit some long jumpers. He did knock down some threes. And he was clearly the most encouraging thing we saw in this summer league. Sam Merrill, we knew that he was a shooter. And in this environment, as a vet, what he did, while still incredibly impressive, was something that I think we all thought he had in him. But the differences between Summer League last year for Mobley and Summer League this year were very noticeable. Game three, Sam Merrill, highlight real game, incredible. But the playoffs belonged to Isaiah Mobley. He came out of the gate looking to dominate. And he willed that team to a victory late in that game against the Nets. Obviously, he did. He hit the game winner. But his aggression was undeniable. Last year, Isaiah still was reasonably good statistically. Nine points, eight rebounds, a few assists. But he took a step forward. And I think we can all agree he was the unquestioned leader of this summer league roster. And that bodes well for our backup big situation. Because while we did acquire... Damian Jones, and he will probably be the first big to fill minutes at the center position. I would say that there's three possibilities. The thing I think most of us expect to see is what we saw lots of last year. When Jared Allen goes down, Mobley will slide to the five, and then the Cavaliers will have to decide if they're going to bring in a more traditional, bigger body. And that could be for defensive reasons, because We're taking on a Sixers and they haven't beat out there. Or it could just simply be because they want to allow Mobley the ability to roam and guard the elite wings, the Jason Tatums, etc. While having a big center who can hold his own against another big center. That would be the scenario where, of course, I would assume it's going to be Jones. But maybe Evan is big enough to guard whoever is lining up at center. And then perhaps you lean towards the Dean Wade, a guy who can theoretically space the floor And he's a little more versatile defensively, can guard three to five, proved to have some very effective stretches against some of the longer elite wings. Now, those type of lineups are the ones where I think Mobley is most likely to see minutes. So the biggest obstacle is if Dean Wade is above him in the pecking order, which I would assume he is right now. I'm not confident, though, by season end that that will be the case based on what we've seen. And I maybe I'm overreacting to Summer League. That's entirely possible. Maybe I'm not giving Dean enough credit. I love Dean. I love the idea of Dean, at least. I was very discouraged by how tentative he seemed to play on the offensive end towards the end of last season. But there's also a third route, which may be opening up as Evan Mobley continues to add weight and size. And that is the space it out route. And all of our roster moves this offseason in free agency would lean into that. Evan or Jared Allen, when they're out there by themselves, they become the center of the defense. Yang as the de facto power forward, Struess or Levert playing the three and the two interchangeably. And then, of course, Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, basically four three-point gunners and a big man. And we did see a lot of that in the playoffs with Osman filling that kind of pseudo big role. I don't know that it's that realistic to expect Mobley to have that big of a role coming out of the gate, but I do think a discussion can be had as to Where do we think, and I asked this question 
at Fear the Fro Pod on Twitter. Extreme recency bias. Would you prefer, if one of these two guys were to get minutes, would you prefer it to be Isaiah Mobley or Dean Wade? And so far, the results are two to one in favor of Isaiah Mobley, 65% to 35%. Now, I realize that's going to be affected by the fact that the man just dominated the summer league, and we haven't seen Dean since our postseason failings. I honestly am on the fence about that. I think early in the season, it will definitely be Dean. But given Evan's stature in the organization, given what Isaiah did to take a bunch of random people paired together and turn them into a team, I think there is a distinct chance that Isaiah Mobley's confidence is something that will make him leapfrog Dean. It's summer league, so take it with a grain of salt. But Isaiah's mentality looked very aggressive. Isaiah looked like a guy who, when he's ignored because he's alongside Garland and Mitchell and Mobley and Allen, that he'll take advantage of that to put some buckets in, to get some easy looks. Dean, again, I'm not trying to disparage him, but after All-Star break, after the love buyout, too many times he looked like he was just out there along for the ride, focusing on defense. And we need more than just a one-way defensive player. We had that in Stevens, and Wade. The expectations are more, though. You're going to get ignored. You can't pass up open looks. You can't just disappear. You can't be one-way players. One of my favorite parts with Mobley was seeing him get the ball on the high block and realize he had a small guy on him and just back that guy under the rim. Now, he won't be able to do that in the NBA, but it's that type of intelligence and recognition that we got to see in this particular crucible, this environment. That makes me feel like that's absolutely translatable. And while last year, I may have still more heavily thought, yeah, there's no chance he leapfrogs Dean. Look at all the shooting we added. Dean's shooting was one of the reasons so many people wanted him to stand out above an Okoro, above a Stevens. But now we have plenty of shooting. He's going to stay on the floor if he actually contributes. He's not going to get a pass because his profile Uh, Seems like it's something we would need. What good is three-point shooting if you're not taking those shots? So I would not be surprised if Isaiah Mobley has made the leaps and bounds over this past year to be able to eventually leapfrog Dean. It's yet to be seen what Isaiah Mobley will look like defensively against NBA bigs, but if he's even remotely close to Dean, it certainly looks like his promise and potential to be more capable on the offensive end, or at least more assertive, is there. And his brother's Evan Mobley. He also proved to be very comfortable getting the ball on the high post, facing up from the elbows, and putting the ball on the floor a little bit in order to create passing lanes and opportunities for others. And that is something Dean doesn't really do much of. If there's an advantage, you would feel fairly comfortable with Dean guarding threes and fours, maybe in spot minutes, guarding fives. Mobley, I don't know how it will translate. He's clearly put on muscle and some strength, but he's not all that big. So there are plenty of fouls that were racked up over the course of this summer league. And he's definitely not what I would call a rim protector. In a summer league environment, he can get by. But in a pro environment, he would get eaten alive. I don't know that I would want him out there trying to guard traditional centers. If it's space it out teams, sure. But I also don't think he's as laterally quick as Dean Wade and would struggle to stay with, you know, wings who are versatile and fast more than, say, a Dean Wade. So I will be curious to see how it plays out. But to go from a situation 
where our backup center was Robin Lopez and our backup big was Dean Wade, who was not playing well, to having Damian Jones, more athletic and a big body and a legitimate size to go along with it. You have Isaiah Mobley, who looks just like a poor man's version of his brother without the defense. He looks comfortable with initiating the offense from the high post, definitely understands pump fakes, using his body to create just a little bit of space. I think that game-winning shot is an excellent example of that. He twisted, he pivoted, he put his shoulder into a guy, and while it was a little bit off balance, it bounced in, and ultimately they won that game to remain undefeated at 5-0. and So I like what I saw from Mobley, and if I was to make snap, emotional, in-the-moment reactions, I would say down the line, we could see him assume that Dean Wade role. Do I know if it'll be this season? No. I don't think it'll be early in the season for sure because he's on a two-way. Dean's on a guaranteed contract. He's just entering his extension. He's being paid $6 million a year. And yes, he had a rough season last year, but he was banged up some. The more troubling part, though, to most of us is that it seemed like Dean lost some confidence. According to all the reports, Dean Wade looked fantastic alongside the starting unit last year in preseason and in practices. And everyone was singing his praises as to, well, this guy's going to shock some people. He's going to surprise you because he's playing phenomenally. And then we got into the season, and after Kevin Love was dispatched, there was a huge opportunity for Dean, and he just didn't seize it in the way that most of us would have wanted. But to come out of this summer league and have Isaiah Mobley play the way that he did and have Amani Bates play the way that he did. I'll be perfectly honest. Anybody who listened to that draft podcast, while I while I did not explicitly say that I wanted to take somebody else, I had serious reservations about Amani Bates. And I think you can tell from the way I spoke of the other possibilities, your Kobe Browns, your Hunter Tysons, your Jalen Wilsons, that I didn't know if Amani Bates was the way that I would go. But Amani quickly has answered a lot of those questions. He said, listen, Listen to me, motherfucker. I got a chip on my shoulder. If you don't think I can play team ball, I will prove it to you. I feel fantastic just about the leaps and bounds he made over the course of this. In the Summer League Championship game last night, you've all seen the highlight. Isaiah Mobley gets on the block. He's getting the ball swatted at and attempted to strip. He's got to go on the floor. He manages to hold on to it, but then he's got to find an outlet, a safety valve, And he finds Bates, who's streaking towards the rim. And Bates essentially one touch passes it to Travers, who flushes it. He could have. He could have tried to finish the layup because the guys were kind of, their feet were set. Maybe he gets a blocking call, but there was a better look. And, And those are the type of encouraging plays. There was another where he got it on the elbow and he waited for the play to develop. And he caught Craig Porter Jr. flashing to the basket for a dunk. And while his shooting percentage... It won't look fantastic on paper because, yes, game one, he had sort of a bad shooting game, and he had a second game that he wasn't that good, game four, I believe. But from three-point range, he knocked down a few threes a game at a 40% clip. So that's very encouraging because it lends itself to the idea that many people hoped, which is when put alongside more talent, when put alongside a system with some structure that he would get and take better looks. And I think all of us can agree that yes, he had moments of some kind of what I would call hero shots or heat checks, some some rushed looks, but he also looked very capable when he got kickouts and was open of knocking down those threes 
at a very high clip. Now, defensively, I still have questions. I do think he improved over the course of those six games, but there are moments where I see things which sort of make me realize, okay, he's still got a ways to go. He'll be a guy trying to back a dude down in the post, and he's just got his back to the play. Or you see a guy put that ball on the floor and take that first step, and he's just a half a step too late to react. And in an NBA setting, he's probably going to end up with a defensive foul in those situations. But there were moments where he came for those weak side blocks, and you think just by the capacity of his length, he's going to end up being able to be a, a helpful defensive presence in some ways. In the ways that we saw, Levert got a little bit of that as we got later and later in the season. He would come back, he would catch guys with contests from behind, from the weak side. And that's the kind of help you want from a guy who's occupying the wing position. Very serviceable rebounder along the way too, averaging six rebounds a game over the course of this summer league. So if he can do anything in that way to fill that void as a wing who can provide some relief to Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, then fantastic. Because that is the one thing we didn't really address when it came to free agency was adding additional rebounding help. We added a ton of shooting, but Bates, if he can give you some of that shooting and help on the glass, like a very developmental poor man's Lowry Markinen, three-point shooting relief valve and a guy who's just physically a large person who can contribute with boards. I think if he can put on some weight and muscle, it is going to unlock a whole nother level. He's a good shooter. That's an NBA skill set that he already has. Craig Porter Jr., what can you say? He's not flashy, but he's effective. He's not tall at 6'2", but he is deceptively athletic. And he can jump. The pacing. The way that he runs the pick and roll. He did not seem rushed. He seemed very comfortable having a guy behind him and knowing how to use his body to shield off defenders trying to chase him over picks. I feel like he's pretty good at getting to the mid-range pull-up and using hesitations and pivots and reverse pivots. And that's the way I came out feeling about both him and Isaiah. They have just a great understanding of the game and how to compensate for the limitations their frame may create by using just intelligent basketball moves. Because yes, he is six foot two. He's not a big guy. But I was pleasantly surprised at how effective he was at finishing with contact and how comfortable he looked battling with bigs defensive rebounding, his boxing out, way ahead of most guards, even NBA guards, to see the way that he looked for where the bodies were, put bodies on him, and went up. He's shockingly athletic, very good vertical. For him to chip in 12 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, get some blocks, he had a 3-steal game in there, and he did that all with Mobley, Bates, Merrill, and even Sharif Cooper early on, all above him in the pecking order. Those four guys are the ones who will have the most opportunity, but also who I was most excited about. Now, I thought Travers was big. In Game 5, for him to get some of those offensive rebounds late, back-to-back buckets on offensive rebounds in overtime, that proved to be huge. And double-digit rebounding games from his position. When Jop went down and we needed more from him on the glass and inside, he filled that role admirably. He's not flashy. He's not, you know, prolific in any one of those capacities of passing, rebounding, scoring, but he can do a little bit of all of them. That ability to be somewhat of a glue guy with this summer league roster, I think it helped raise the ceilings of everyone else. Sharif Cooper, prior to going down with that injury, 
He was very good. But I don't have expectations of Travers or Cooper playing with this Cavalier roster, at least not in its present state. He could get poached by someone else. Just yesterday against the Rockets, we got to see a guy who was on the Cavs Summer League roster last year look like the best player on the Rockets Summer League roster. So it is a good time for the Summer League Cavalier development system here because you had to feel very good about the four guys who we know may get opportunities with the Cavs this season, which are Mobley Bates and Craig Porter Jr. on the two A's and then Sam Merrill. All those guys very good and respectable showings from both Sharif Cooper, who was scoring 14 points a game. That was without really the three-point shot. This was just a guy who knew how to get a step, get out in transition, get to the bucket, and led the way for the Cavaliers uh, in multiple games before going down. But to come into this offseason and to walk away with Struess, Damian Jones, Ty Jerome, George Yang, and then to know we have the luxury of two ways for Mobley Bates and Craig Porter Jr. and Merrill. And let's talk about Merrill for just a second. We knew that Sam Merrill was a good shooter, but for him to be knocking down five three-pointers a game at a 45% clip for this Cleveland Cavalier team, shooting with motion, that is exactly what we are trying to address in free agency. So in some ways, his path may have been made more difficult because now we have Struess and Yang out there. Now, Yang, I think he shouldn't view him as direct competition because we grabbed him as a hope to have some sort of hybrid big. We didn't get a conventional big. We got a guy, though, who at 6'8 and a little thicker will be able to serve in that role where he can play some of those minutes at the, the power forward spot when needed. Merrill was never going to do that. Struess is a bit of an impediment, but we also had Danny Green on the roster last year. So I am curious to see if we figure out a way to get him out on the floor more and play a conventional, traditional point guard less. Because as it stands before, when one of Garland or Mitchell went down, a lot of times we would go right to Rubio. And I think there's a chance that that happens again or that it ends up being Ty Jerome if Rubio hasn't shaken off some of the post-injury rust. But I'd be curious to see if the Cavaliers just resign themselves to, we're going to run almost all of the point guard duties with the two guards and Karis LeVert so that we have an opportunity to get yet another elite shooter out there. If you could roll out Sam Merrill with Max Struess and George Nyang, the space that that's going to provide inside will seem unbelievable compared to what we had to work with last year. So this summer league just left me feeling like, my God, six months ago, it felt like the cupboard was empty. The Cavaliers add Sam Merrill later in the season. Isaiah Mobley, who destroyed last year with the charge. It looks like that's translatable. Isaiah Mobley got shafted in terms of summer league awards, which I know they're meaningless. But he was the best player on our team, and he didn't even make one of the first or second team all summer league teams. But he got his revenge for two games in the playoffs. He put the summer league on notice. Because that's the kind of shit that stirs shit up. He fucked anyone and everyone in his path. And he got the last laugh, motherfucker. Peace out. And by the way, I assume most of you know I'm just playing clips from Ron Perlman. But uh, can we talk about that for a second? This man delivered just an unhinged rant aimed at what most people think was Bob Iger from Disney, but it was aimed at an anonymous studio exec who said that basically they'll just 
wait out the actors and writers until they're losing their houses and their mortgages and their homes because they don't have money left, which is very insensitive. But then Ron Perlman uh, decided to record a video, and let me just play the audio about this writer and actor strike in Hollywood. I'll play the audio. The motherfucker. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that. Now, I don't know. I mean, he walked it back afterwards, but he's basically saying he will burn a man's house down. And he's doing it while birds are gleefully chirping in the back. Listen, motherfucker. Beep, beep, cheep, 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 cheep. And we know who said that. And where he fucking lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve while you're making 27 fucking million dollars a year for creating nothing. Dean Wade is making six fucking million dollars a year for shooting nothing. Be careful, motherfucker. Be really careful. Because that's the kind of shit that stirs shit up. Peace out. Ugh. Ron Perlman's 73 years old. Peace out. Also, come on, dude. I get it. You play Hellboy. But we know you're an actor. You're not burning anyone's house down. This isn't relatable. Normal people go on strike. UPS goes on strike, and they put them on the news and interview them. You don't hear them saying, yeah, I'm going to fucking murder the postmaster general. If you want people on your side, act like a normal human being, not someone who appears to be delivering overacted death threats while birds are chirping behind you. I will find where you live. Cheep, 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 cheep. I will murder your whole family. I don't know. Maybe just let the nanny do her thing, okay? That would be my advice. But back to basketball, because Isaiah Mobley, Amani Bates, Sam Merrill, they all had summer league performances to write home about. Amani Bates looked so much better than my expectations. I was worried that we would just get a guy who came out and looked for his own and didn't play within a team framework. But if there's anything that was great about this summer league watching experience, It's that you saw a bunch of guys thrown together who played like they'd been playing together for an entire season. They looked like a genuine team. And and while I do think other teams have some supremely talented players and prospects, I mean, just look at Houston. Yeah, uh, Thompson didn't play. I mean, Cam Whitmore, he's been great. Top to bottom, I don't know that there was a team that could rival what the Cavs were putting out there. And it showed on the court with their 6-0 record. So. The problem now is I almost feel like there's too many bodies. And I know that JB is not a guy who runs a deep rotation. So to expect us to play beyond nine guys, is it generally just doesn't happen. And then who gets asked out in this situation? The two-way guys, they may get more opportunities later in the season or as injuries mount. But if nothing else, their existence there would make you a little bit more comfortable if you have to throw guys like Rubio or Dean Wade into trade iterations that may crop up later in the season or next year. Even with what we saw here, I wouldn't get my hopes too high that these guys are going to play significant roles. I don't think Craig Porter Jr. will see basically any time. A lot of that is because I think Ty Jerome is somebody who should command time. Ty Jerome, for him to come here with Garland and Mitchell there on a low-money deal, I think there's probably some expectations from him that were conveyed by the coaching staff who has apparently chased him even before he went to Golden State 
that he would have an opportunity to have some kind of reasonable role here. I do believe that. So Bates, his talent alone may eventually get him up into that system, but I think it's going to be how quickly JB can feel comfortable with him on the defensive end because we all know that this Cavs culture is is built on defense. And while it seems to be shifting towards more of a focus on, okay, we got to lean into shooting some, I think it will take Bates some time to earn the trust of JB on the defensive end, on the NBA level. As for Isaiah Mobley, I definitely think JB would play him right now. He just has that kind of game that a coach would love, but it's really going to be a matter of how do the Cavs use that second unit? Do they go smaller and space out the floor? Because Mobley, he's obviously not a conventional stretch big. He may be working on that shot, but he's not there. And if they choose to roll out a Mobley and then stretch the floor with Yang getting minutes at the four, or if Dean Wade gets the first look because he does profile as a better outside shooter, I guess we'll see. But you have to feel great. Between now and two months ago when it was painfully clear how much our lack of bench help cost us, to see what we've done in this summer league, it washes so much of the bad taste out of my mouth. And I love, I absolutely love everything that Kobe Altman has done this summer on paper. You know, we'll see how this translates, but the guys that he brought in on free agency and what's happening with the development of these later guys, adding Craig Porter Jr. as an undrafted free agent, the leap from year one to year two of Isaiah Mobley, a guy who I admit it, when we drafted him, I figured there was a lot of nepotism involved, but to get what we're getting out of pick number 49 and Isaiah Mobley and pick number 49 in Amani Bates, you'd be hard-pressed to find guys drafted in those spots who provided what these guys provided in Summer League. They are delivering. And while, yes, there were some great performances, seven three-pointer performances from Hunter Tyson and Kobe Brown, and we saw how good Wilson played with the Nets and some of these other guys who were possibilities for us, what Amani Bates proved to be very good at right out of the gate. I mean, he shot better than Julian Strother, who was one of the second-round marksmen There is something to be said for the difficulty of the Eastern Michigan shots pushing those percentages down. But when you watch his stroke, I'm fully on board. It 100% will translate. So let's wrap it up for today. Uh, Again, I will probably, I may be on later this week. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to work out the logistics of when I can get the guest on that I'm hoping to speak with about everything that's transpired this offseason. But we're going to start looking ahead towards the season just recapping on a league-wide level all the stuff that's changed, stuff we're excited about, things other teams should be excited about. So there will be more Fear the Fro podcast. But thank you to everybody who has been so supportive of this effort of mine. Now we can really start looking at what is basically a finished product roster-wise. Now, one more thing. I wanted to say this about Christian Wood because I just touched on it on the last podcast. But there are rumors now. Fedor wrote uh, an article on cleveland.com where he alluded to the Cavs being interested in Ubre or Wood. At this point, again, I want to say I don't think we're the front runner. I won't be devastated if we don't get either, but I would support either. And and I wanted to expound a little bit because last podcast I said I thought the locker room issues thing was overstated. I understand. There are a couple things that he's made the news for. Christian Wood missed a mandatory COVID test. And Kidd decided to bench him. And then when he wanted to bring him in in the second half, Wood didn't want to check in. He pulled a Scotty Pippen. And I, I don't condone that. Of course, that's immature. That's not how a pro should conduct themselves. And then 
uh, kid also inferred he's uncoachable. I, I certainly don't think he's a perfect player, but what I was preaching in the last podcast was look at the context before you just write a guy off as unredeemable. Wood had to fight his ass off to carve out minutes in this league. Then when he finally got the opportunity, look at where it landed him. His first real chance to sign a deal, he goes to Houston thinking that he's going to get to compete in the Western Conference with James Harden, and he ends up the lone veteran on a team where they just hand the keys to two inefficient volume gunners in Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. Would you not be a little miffed? Would you not feel like you got bait and switched? I know I would. Is some of that his fault? Possibly, but a lot of it is not. There are very few times in the NBA where you can add two players with the undeniable talents of a Christian Wood or a Kelly Oubre at a cost that is rumored to be close to the mid-level or biannual exception. What I was preaching in my defense of Christian Wood was risk-reward analysis and context. In Detroit, the man had half of a season where he showed out and they had to make a decision on if they were going to commit to him long-term or throw their money at Jeremy Grant, who is a true two-way player. And they chose Grant. I would have chose the same thing as well because they also got Isaiah Stewart back in their trade to the Houston Rockets. But I by no means think that that means that they didn't like him in the Detroit locker room. I think that was a decision of, would you want to pay $20 million to Jeremy Grant or $17 million to Christian Wood, who we've only seen flourish for a half a season in a garbage situation that we're running here. And I, too, would have chosen Jeremy Grant with the benefit of hindsight. I will say in the moment, I thought, holy shit, that's a lot of money for Jeremy Grant, who was more of an afterthought on that deep Denver roster. But to Houston, he goes there to be a vet. They decide to tank. He plays two years where he's the most efficient offensive player they have. And then Houston knows they don't want a vet amongst all this youth, so let's trade him while we can get something. He gets to Dallas, and he gets relegated to the bench, despite the fact that before Kyrie was acquired, he was clearly the second most talented offensive player. Now, he has limitations on the floor. He sets terrible screens defensively. He bites on pump fakes. You can get him out of position. But he has fairly nimble feet. The tools are there. The discipline is not. Remember, people said Karis LeVert is a terrible defensive player. That's what I was told by Raptors fans when we were going to entrust him to be our small forward. I was told, well, you, he, it doesn't matter if he can score a bunch. He's a terrible defender. If anything, his defense was one of the high points of this past season. Our team can coach defense. Do I know it'll work? No, but... If it's going to work anywhere, I think it could be in Cleveland. The opportunities to add talents at this level for that that cost make it worth the risk. But one more thing I want to say about Dallas. Jason Kidd inferred he's uncoachable. This team with Luka, Kyrie Irving, Christian Wood, they didn't even make the play-in. Maybe everybody's uncoachable then. Maybe Luka Doncic, a top-five player, he's uncoachable. Look at the person delivering the message. Do we believe Jason Kidd is a fantastic coach? I don't. At best, you have to admit the jury is out on that. So if you want to write off Wood because he left Detroit, got traded from Houston, and doesn't appear to be a priority for Dallas, so be it. 
I'm not going to try to convince you that he's a flawless player, but 16 points, 7 to 8 rebounds, 38% three-point shooting, at a minimum contract, if he proves to be this locker room concern that so many people are throwing out there, then you send him home because you have no long-term, high-money, financial commitment to him. That's all I'll say. And the same largely applies with Ubre. If he's an impediment to the development of younger players, which is why I'd be more concerned with an Ubre than a Wood, because we seem to now have some wings. We seem to now have some small forwards that are young that we're trying to develop. It can't be said for the backup four. We've got Dean Wade, who clearly has a ceiling. We've got Isaiah Mobley, who is coming, but may not be ready quite yet. Christian Wood would be a luxury. So yes, I support it. That's enough, though. That's I'm getting off my soapbox. I'm going to close up shop for today. More Fear the Fro podcasts on the way soon. Thank you. Please rate and review. Levert, live the Mobley. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.